Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind, two crickets in a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Armour, joined as ever, but the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. How's it, how's it? How's it, man? Uh, right, so a bunch of things have been going on in the world since we last had one of these shows. Um, and one of the big ones that we've been meaning to talk about for a little while is... I've, well, before we get to the news, I think we should explain ourselves. Um, away for a couple of weeks, uh, I caught the flu. Yes, I you had a pretty bad, right? Your, your throat was all messed up and you were coughing a lot. Yeah, I don't know that coughing's bad. Um, I was feverish for a couple of days, night sweats for three nights, uh, which is unpleasant because without sleep, a human being is a grumpy. And I think part of what was interesting about the situation there, well, so, I mean, so to start out with April, uh, you know, public holidays all the time, hard to get hold of people. Uh, so if, you, if you're out for three days, it's kind of like out being being out for a week and then there's a lot of catch-up to do uh when mm. you come back from that uh part of what is interesting about the case was that i i caught it from my fiance who had gone to visit her mother in germany mm. and so she was sick in germany and was very worried that she wouldn't be able to get on the flight but she caught uh, she took a test and then she could get on the flight and uh, the test was for COVID, obviously. And then I got sick and, and for sort of contractual reasons had to get tested as well, even though it was pretty obvious uh, where I'd gotten it. Um, and I also came out negative. Um, and my mom also got sick. Uh, and uh, just two days ago, got tested. She, she got sick much later than us. We'd been like, you should stay away. She didn't stay away. Uh, we, we we sort of had a lunch together and she caught it and um, caught the flu. Anyway, she got tested as well, also negative. Uh, my sister and her children were sick. I'm, I think they were tested negative as well. So, uh, so the flu is back, just, baby. So that's just the family. In the friend circle, uh, I counted... Um, a baker's dozen is that no baker's dozen is 13 i counted seven whatever one more than six is uh who had it and i don't have a lot of friends um so i thought that was interesting I th but the thing that really struck me as interesting was that the financial times in the uk had my sort of favorite headline of the year in a way which was that uh flu is now more deadly than COVID, or COVID now less deadly than flu uh that's not for everyone, but it's for everyone who's either been vaccinated or been infected before. And statistically, so many people have been infected or, or vaccinated in the UK that overall, this right. is the effect. And, and part of what's nice about that Financial Times article is that it breaks it down by age group. And it shows that for every age range, uh, you know, even if, even if it's, even though people that are in their 70s are a thousand times more at risk than people like us uh for any particular age range within that age range the flu is more uh said to be more deadly than COVID by this financial times piece which was citing uh uh ohs data anyway official you know government uh, british data despite all of that and despite the fact that immediately uh local experts like shabir Mahdi were asked you know 
well, does this apply here? And the answer was yes. And the answer is yes, because, uh, he, you know, he said, uh, we've made similar estimates for South Africa. And uh, he's, of the scientists, he's been the most vocal uh, expert speaking to the level of uh, infection that's already taken place, the indication that this makes that previous government policies in South Africa have been a total failure. Uh, two weeks ago, you were saying, you know, if the policies were any good, like with the masks, then nine out of 10 South Africans wouldn't already have been infected with the virus once. I'm not exactly sure where he gets nine out of 10 because his study at the end of last year showed that eight out of 10 South Af eight out of 10 Gautengers, adult Gautengers already had it before Omicron. Uh, and Omicron really spreads like wildfire. So for it to go to eight to nine, from eight to nine, hmm, maybe eight till maybe it goes from eight to nine and a half or something like that. Anyway, uh, the point is, even though all of these people in my family know all of this because I can't shut up, including myself, right? We still all go get tested and, and sort of are hoping that we will have the more deadly disease called flu because the, because why? Because we are like, programmable monkeys and right. no matter how rational you are you've just been hearing so much scary stuff about the one and also uh, mu equals bad mu equals bad the flu by the way is new what every year the flu is new you know anyway uh, right but it's the flu you even, know the flu even, i know the flu it's like an also old hilariously like like the South African government, like when you climb into the airport, so shortly after, Elena was in Germany when they lifted the mask mandate and the vaccine pass requirement. But the, and and subsequently, um, a lot of flights in Europe have, have become mask free. But at the time you had to mask and you had to get tested uh, in order to come to South Africa. And the amazing thing is how stressed Elena was. She was like, I've definitely got either the flu or COVID. I'm feverish. I'm like, I've been coughing. And the test, if the test says, look, if you've got the, if you've got the less deadly one, you've got to stay at home. <laughs> you could go on. If you've got the, you've yeah. got the more deadly one, you're then you can go on the plane to get on. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh yeah. No, I, I, as a little aside, um, I, my, my heart, uh, pleads for her knowing that she had to travel on a very long flight while feeling feverish which is not no no, no. I, I should i should be she she had broken her fever the day before. okay good good or, or, or I, so she wasn't maximally contagious or maximally sick i, awful, I traveled awful, awful i traveled to south africa from the u.s while hungover once and it wasn't like your regular hangover it was a it's a bad one and <laughs> let me tell you that that was not a fun trip <laughs> I think the last time I flew back from the US, there was a guy in front of me, like a young teenager, who was either so hungover that he was basically catatonic or had eaten mushrooms. And we were flying via the Netherlands. So it kind of felt like he might have stupidly pre-gamed in New York. <laughs> yeah, you like gotta be ready for, for the party he was planning to land in in Amsterdam. <laughs> But I thought the only thing worse than being like catatonically hungover would be psychedelically catatonic. 
Oh yeah, in a small on an airplane. Uh, small chip, lots of human beings. Ugh. You know, one day, one day, uh, we should do a show about airplanes because actually they have quite interesting economics. Um, they make all their money from the business class, which is one of the more interesting things. Well, not all their money, but like the the biggest chunk is from the business class. Uh, but we should we should probably get on to, <laughs> to what we wanted to talk about. Okay, on to what we want to talk about. Although I, I must just say before we do that, so. That was the one delay was was me being sick and then having some work catch up, uh, and some of the work catch up was very exciting. Um, I'd say that the quirkiest one was submitting a opposition to the cannabis for private purposes bill um, mm, yes. on behalf yes. of. You uh, actually gave a talk to us on that on that exact topic as well. Yeah, on behalf of a fresh agricultural union called Sai with some really good dudes. And I mean, basically the amazing thing about the law, you know, like the Concord in 2018 was said, dudes, you can't stop people. It can't be illegal to smoke a joint at home. And it's currently illegal. So we're going to unillegal it and parliament like we're, we're unillegaling it, but you should unillegal it properly. You should change the law. Unillegaling it doesn't sound very good. You should change the law parliament. Well, that was years. in the year 2018, and yes. they had two years to do it. Yeah. So, Gabriel, uh, have they done it yet? No. So this is what, what they're trying to do. <laughs> 2022. Check so it only 100% time overrun. I mean, that's not, you know, as per government standards, that's not terrible. Dude, even in the evil empire of Russia, which shall not be named in any other way, uh, and has its own calendar uh, almost, it is still 2022. Uh and so by any standard, even by their evil standards, uh, our parliament has dragged its feet on this one. The most amazing thing is that in section 1A1, they say, okay, commercial trade in cannabis is hereby authorized. And then they go on in section from 1A2 through like 4BH212 to lay out criminal penalties for selling as little as one joint so it doesn't make sense they say amongst other things the commercial activities that have been authorized will be defined in a later law that parliament will pass on another day ah <laughs> yeah this is um this is not the gold standard in regulatory and lawmaking processes i don't think so it's really stupid. It's as if, dude, honestly, it would make more sense if you got some teenagers stoned and and said, write down the rules, yeah. which is not a good idea. Teenagers shouldn't smoke weed. I didn't smoke until I was uh, uh, out of high school. Anyway, um, so yeah. that was a fun thing. And then I was ready to go because I caught up with that and a whole bunch of other submissions and sort of strange background projects. But then Nicholas was out of play because he's <laughs> for a much less noble reason. Because he's old now, he's old. Yes, yes. So I'm happy, I'm happy birthday, I'm Nicholas! Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm now 29, um, so it's only one more year until I have to pretend that I'm an adult, which is not great, I must say. Um, but you know, here we are. Old, <laughs> old, old Nicholas. Then there was a further delay because we were supposed to go on today an hour ago but i was i was gripped by lesecha kanyako's face appearing on the television screen downstairs while i was making a cup of tea 
I told you announcing... to turn the TV downstairs, dude. It always leads you into trouble. <laughs> I'm not in. I'm not in control of it. And he was announcing that the Prudential Authority, which is part of the Saab, which but also is a sort of overlapping thing between the South African Reserve Bank and the Treasury, are putting UBank into curatorship, which is interesting because UBank has four and a half million clients. It's like the number one bank for miners, including miners that are not exactly That's local. What, more than 10% of, of adult South Africans, something like that. Yeah. So, well, I, yeah, I think significantly more. There's like 30 million South African grown-ups. Huh? Half of us are roughly below 18 and half of us above, something like that. So, um, and a lot of those customers, as far as I can tell, are in like Malawi and uh, Zim and so on. The The biggest U-Bank I've ever seen was in Yeovil, uh, the mecca of the foreigner. Um, I think because they facilitate uh international you know within africa international um financial transfers remittances uh pretty well anyway so four and a half million customers like their bank has just basically been declared bankrupt another government has to try and step in and save it from uh itself and try and keep the jobs going and make you know the, the first thing they always do is they promise they're like no your assets are fine because they don't want e everyone to try and go withdraw their assets right now because it's just been <laughs> sort of emergency <laughs> announced that they're under curatorship. I don't know if if that's going to translate into <laughs> your your assets is fine. It's one of those um, promises where it's kind of like you know oh don't worry the house isn't on fire don't worry don't worry it's not yeah. On fire. Don't, the, don't you just sit down. Don't, don't, don't have to go look. Comes back late on a Friday night. He's like, there were no girls at the party. No, 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 no. <laughs> no one asked. Why are you volunteering that information? <laughs> it's not a good look. So, I mean, I think that's kind of... Anyway, I find central banking stuff fascinating. But it's generally been a fascinating time. Uh, Musk's Twitter thing got put on hold. We talked about it as soon as it came out because it yeah. turns out... That they did a sample test. I Nick, I think this is the greatest story for the IRR. Yeah. So we have this thing where we do our surveys every year, every other year. It right. costs like over a million rands, millions of rands, whatever it is. Yeah. To go and ask usually thousands of people, two and a half thousand people for a country of of uh, thirty million adults, whatever it is, uh, a bunch of questions and, and, to have it. If you're wondering why some polling is a little bit dodgy or why some polling doesn't seem to come out that often, it's because it's really expensive, particularly for an It's NGO. hella expensive. Yes. So we go and do this thing. And, you know, with two and a half thousand in our population, you get roughly a two and a half percent um, swing on a 95% confidence interval, which means if you get 70% of people saying something, it means... You can be 95% sure that between 67.5% and 72.5% of people are of that view. So that's kind of the world we live in. But because we find like 80% of black South Africans say that they would rather have a voucher system than BEE and that they haven't personally experienced any racism in the last five years. Uh, and then, in fact, uh, more black South Africans say they haven't personally experienced any racism in the last five years than white South Africans. You have all of these results. And, by the way, more white South Africans prefer BEE than black South Africans. <laughs> yes, no, that's in, in percentage terms. Uh, that's, my my yeah, personal that's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so you go out there with these facts and you say, what I want to do is have a conversation about this. Let's interpret this. And my favorite thing is when people say things like, you know, okay, most black South Africans are saying they're not personally experiencing any racism, but think about it. A lot of black South Africans live in like rural wherever. And it turns out that they almost never see a white guy. I know what it's like. I drove into a town in Mpumalanga last year. Where, like dudes were stopping and they were like, yeah, I'm wrong. Look, there's, there's one of them. You know, it's like seeing a, a unicorn or something. Uh, you can, you can even go to some parts. I mean, you don't even have to go that far. There's some parts of Soweto where people will still shout Mlungu at you if you go there. Um, it's oh. not as common as it used to be, but... Right. I mean, there's, like, most of Yeovil in town, if I walk around for a while, someone's going to shout Mlungu at me, but... <laughs> yeah, oh, but that's... Jesus, my <laughs> Yeovil in town is a, is a different place. <laughs> right. It's not necessarily that they haven't seen one in a while, uh, one of those things. It's, it's more like uh, something else. Anyway, so... The, the point is that then you can start having an interesting conversation. You can be like, well, what percentage of the country is rural? What percent of the country is urban? Uh, what is life really like in Santon? When you go to the VNA waterfront, what do you really see? Et cetera, et cetera. <coughs> and, and, and there's a chance of, of learning on both sides, right? Um, so, but instead of that sort of conversation, uh, which ultimately, you know, I believe if it was done right, would lead to the conclusion that race is not a particularly right. We got a lot of problems with race. Serious. Ain't one. Well, it is a problem. It's yeah. It's not quite the Jay Z song, but it turns <laughs> out the nice thing about the Jay Z song, I've got ninety nine problems, but a uh, uh, a lady, a lady dog ain't one <laughs> to avoid swearing. <laughs> uh, is that you know Jay Z had some problems, uh, even with his his most in his most illustrious marriage with Beyonce. Because it just turns out that there's always problems in a in a relationship. Uh, right. you know, but it's but it's not the major priority. Anyway, instead of the conversation getting there, it always gets derailed at the very beginning on 702 Power mm -hmm. FM, Newsroom Africa, SAP, right, I claim that, wherever I've had the claim it. is usually that you're lying in some way or manipulating things or your sample isn't big enough. Your sample, how can you you've only asked two and a half thousand people? How can that be representative? Okay, and it's like one dude, then you have one guy like Clement Manuela claiming to speak for all black people, whereas like uh, you know, <laughs> 1,800 black people can't speak for anyway. I think well, that the Twitter he... thing is the perfect situation because there you really do have an amazing sampling problem. Twitter figured out that only 5% of the accounts on Twitter are fake by sampling 100 accounts out of like 750 million or something. <laughs> so then Elon Musk was like, dude, I'm going to sample another 100. And if they come up with a different number, then, <laughs> yeah, then I'm not going to then... buy you for $44 billion anymore. I'm going to charge cheaper, which he can't do. He's being stupid because... He already, you know, he waived the due diligence requirements so they didn't have to actually do it properly. But the sampling thing, now we have a good example of what bad sampling practice looks like. It's when right. you use 100 out of 750 million. That turns right. out to just not be able to produce statistical significance. I like that story. Yeah, and, 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 and there are actually, there is a geography to Twitter, which is one of the sort of interesting things. If you spend a lot of time online, you notice that these, these like little... Um, 
clumps of users in certain ways. So can, I think it can actually be quite difficult. Like, for example, um, Elon Musk actually has a lot of fake followers because uh, people associate him with wealth. So these fake accounts set themselves up. They follow him, and then they try to either get him to retweet them or interact with them, and they, they, they sit in his replies, and they try and trick people into getting into some kind of Bitcoin scam um, or or some kind of financial yeah, scam. Yeah, it's just the halo effect of the richest dude in the world. Yeah, yeah exactly. And this is this is a this is a, a problem. So I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised if he's a little bit skeptical, specifically because he sees all of these guys in his mentions uh, yes. constantly trying to scam off of his name. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, I I, I think. Hmm, I'm yeah, not sure I mean, this reminds me of, of of Helen Zilla, who at some stage had four million Twitter followers. And this was like, wow, you're amazing. And then she was like, dude, at least one and a half million of those are fake. And and fake fake is a, is also a, a complex term, right? Because there's different kinds of fake. There's automated accounts, which are like just totally a robot. Then there's one account that's been like hired out to this, the, the, of these farms in like India or something where you have one guy who's running 30 accounts at the same time. Uh, and then there's also these ones where people are sort of doing it for free. There's like one person owns five accounts and then they just switch between them all the time to pretend like they're multiple people. Um, yes. You were discussing this on the show, the other, uh, you know, people going, but going up to disagree with themselves. Uh, yes. Yeah. Obviously one thing is to go up and boost yourself. And the other one is to go and disagree with yourself and then right. be aggrieved and be like, Oh my God, someone bullied me. <laughs> yes yes no you, you can manufacture you can manufacture many social situations on social media uh, uh, being different people and then of course there's the other kind of fake account which is where you are uh one of the members of the evil russian empire always to be described in those terms and none other uh in which case that's just its own category because you can change entire countries my favorite line uh from reuters last week was covering the story i'll see if i can pull it up they decided to go back over the sort of history of uh, fake accounts in Twitter. And they came up, so they, you know, they're going through the history of it and they say the following. Questions about the role bots play in spreading misinformation have dogged all social media platforms since 2016, when Russia meddled in the US presidential election in a bid to boost Donald Trump's candidacy and harm his opponent, Hillary Clinton. So before 2016, there was, yeah. there, it was fine. And then the evil Russian empire came in, got Donald Trump elected. Look, uh, that it, narrative you, is still going strong in 2022. Isn't that you, amazing? Yeah. <laughs> no, you, you know, you know, my, you know, my feelings about the evil Russian empire. And yet at the same time, it, to think that there's this, just this recurring meme out there that the world started in 2016. It's it amazing. Not, not even close. <laughs> Dude, and the thing is, we come from the generation like that was born when the Berlin Wall fell, that like, you know, began to play in the sandpit when the rainbow flag emerged and Nelson Mandela uh, you know, authorized Nkosi Sekeleli as our national anthem. We really did begin uh with Pax Americana and a new and a new country and a new constitution. We know what it's like to be born into a new era. But I don't think we were as obnoxious or our parents were as obnoxious as the people who like think 2016 is when the world began. Anyway. Um, and, and just, most... just as, 
Yeah. Just as a, a point to that, if we're going to talk about when new eras began, I think there's a case to be made that the new world of the sort of you know weird internet politics age probably began in 2013. Um, I I know that Jonathan Haidt, Jonathan I think, has, yeah, yeah. Has, has has suggested that that's sort of when like the kind of current modern version of wokeness really explodes out into the sort of public spaces around there. Um, and a year that's after that, suicides pick up. That's when I graduated. I mean, clearly, yeah, also... I left. I left American <laughs> University, and it all went crazy. Clearly, clearly, I <laughs> correlation, could see it, causation, all that, all that. But because because it's our reunions, I should just say a, a, a sort of ridiculous story about Princeton. I really did see it. I really did have this sort of conversation in the in our graduation in 2012, saying, you know, I really, I think it's obnoxious to say we were the great generation and now it's all going to be downhill. But like there were good ones before us. Afterwards, I really think it is going to be downhill. The story yeah, rested, you might have been the last of the greats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The story rested on the fact that at this one particular eating club, everything had been bohemian and sweet and like right on the on the edge of wokeness, you know, but all the good sides, all the really good things about um you know, being in a place where there's lots of nude parties and psychedelics and, uh, you know, uh, jewels through the nose and uh, many different sexual orientations. And Godless hedonism. Look at you, Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> Funny scribbling art on the wall. And everybody could quote Derrida. Uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. The, you know what took over that club? The, the guys in the year below us, the, the class of 2013, had finally broken the the sort of gentlemanly, well, that's the wrong word, the the between friends code, according to which you could consume and buy things like marijuana in the club, but you would keep it civilized. And they were like, we're going to go full on commercial. We are going to commodify the bohemian revolution here. So we're going to sell to like people not involved in the university. We're going to like advertise through secret channels on the internet. And those guys, I remember hanging out with them. They were making thousands of dollars a week. Like in an average week, $7,000. So it's like a hundred thousand rand a week, two dudes. And I was like, this is the problem the the, the guys coming after us, are more serious about exploiting the gaps in the code than we ever were. We we were playful, and these guys are business. And in a way, I think that's a nice um, prophecy or like a, a nice understanding of, of one aspect of the 2013 shift that Jonathan had described because all of these ideas were around before. Anyway, we, we should get into the main matter but I wanted right. to go through like earlier news stories in part because I wanted to build up to my favorite story. Like, I mean, there are so many others that I think have been interesting in the last little while. Numpu started today, the largest agricultural fair in the Southern Hemisphere. They're in the Free State. Nicholas and I went together a few years ago. It was a part, it was a jewel. So many, so many good things going on, so many bad things going on. Some guys built a bridge between two parts of KZN that had been torn asunder 
by a combination of the weather and the AMC's uselessness for the last 30 years. The community in, what's it called? Do you know the story? It's no, called, I don't know the story. Dude, the suburb, I kid yeah. you not, shall cross. <laughs> well, if your suburb is called that, you, you can't not go out and build the bridge, right? Dude, like Buddhists and Muslims and Christians getting together in shall cross to literally <laughs> build a bridge across <laughs> the Gulf. This sort of, it's a wonderful story. Um, be, be that as all as it may, my favorite story is the fact that we have now finally looked into the center of our galaxy. Yes, yes. Uh, and we have gotten the second, I think it's the second ever photograph of a black hole. Second um, ever photo of a black hole, but this time... And it looks exactly like home. the first one. <laughs> it does not look exactly like the first one. Nicholas <laughs> is a slobbering oaf <laughs> with no respect <laughs> for the subtleties. Look, I'll grant you, I mean, it does kind of remind me of when the, we have now heard two gravitational waves. Right. So it just turns out that for, for let's say, 80 years, there's been a long-standing controversy about some fundamental facts about how space, time, and energy and mass relate to one another. And the thought that there's kind of this fabric which, is, which can ripple um, was vindicated by the detection of a gravitational wave produced by uh very fast spinning supermassive objects uh that 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 basically send a ripple in space time itself you could kind of say uh right, which is so the universe the, the idea that the universe is, is is very similar to a giant piece of fabric is so like or custard fitting with your yeah, or custard right it's so it's so not fitting with a kind of like our traditional view of that that it hurts to even think about space time is this sort of squishy thing uh that, yeah, yeah. That no, it, rippled in. it kind of it hurts i would say it hurts uh in a in a good way it hurts a little bit like the peri peri oh yeah for sure in a in a good machachas burger um <coughs> the the thing is so they they detected it and then they could express it as a sound because it's just a wave and you can express uh waves as sounds because sounds are just waves and so you hear the sound is like bloop and it's like that's what it sounds like to ripple the universe <laughs> and then you <laughs> and then the second one that they detected a few years later i think which was just last year we heard the second one it was much clearer they were like oh this one's much clearer and it had like it was like bloop, bloop. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of just the same so i hear you that the visual imaging of the center of AR67 or whatever it is, um, is pretty much the same as the center of uh, Sagittarius. Am I getting those names right? M87 was the first one that we saw, yeah, and this is Sagittarius, Sagittarius A. Still, yeah. Uh, and, and there's this weird thing that, that there seems, it looks like there probably is, and they've just photographed it, so that seems to suggest even more, that there is a very big black hole at the center of most galaxies which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, so, to, you know, in the same way that our, our planet orbits the sun, 
our mm. sun is orbiting the middle of the galaxy. The galaxy is sort of made of these spirals that are twisting. If you, you look at a galaxy from above, as it were, and it looks a lot like a screenshot of a bath draining if you had sort of daubed a few bits of cream that would then make these curled arcs that then go to the center. So the question is, what's the center of the drain? And it turns out that the answer seems most often likely to be supermassive black holes. So it's interesting that we can see them. I think part of what's interesting about this case, so the other case, you're looking very far away. You can kind of get a bit of a cross-section. You, you can kind of look at the black hole from above, as it were. Here, you've got to look through our whole galaxy. So in order to do that, it's the first thing you've got to realize is that it's, it's not being looked at with a mirror telescope, like the David Webb telescope. Um, right, because because if you look at the center of the galaxy, it's like through a you're like in the cloud looking through the cloud. Yes, exactly. Which which makes it very difficult to see what's going on. Yes, exactly. Sorry. So there's the James. I said David Webb. James Webb Telescope is the one which really is like looking right. It's got all these mirrors, and it's been calibrated. You know, it got launched up last year, but it couldn't be used yet because they had to calibrate it first. It's finally been calibrated. It's looking, and then, but that can't do this kind of work because it, it would. That has to look out of our galaxy, right? In order to see things far away, this is looking through the galaxy, which you right. can only do with radio waves. Yeah, with not so it's light. like one, so it's like one bat detecting like clicking and then hearing how the wall bounces to mm. see how things work. But 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 thousands of bats. Yes. And then if you collate the information from each bat, you can sort of cancel out the in between bits, and and calculate what the, uh, what the deep thing behind the in-between bits looks like looks like so right. i think the proper way to characterize the process is a bat hive mind which <laughs> yes. i quite like because you need to combine these things and the, and it's so sweet because we knew one of the scientists was sort of involved in this german um digital uh, physicists uh researcher professor who's specifically involved in the imaging side of things this process of taking the bat hive mind this raw data from many different positions that needs to be collated and then translated into something you can look at uh, and, and for Nicholas to laugh at. And she, on the morning uh, of the announcement last week, like sent out this cryptic message, like, guys, check it out, three o'clock, going to be a big announcement. Yes. And it's so cute, dude. There are human beings, we are monkeys that cannot do better than than the orange orangutan or the zombie corpse occupying the White House now. <laughs> we can't do better than, you know, we couldn't avoid the war in Ukraine could, could have been avoided by four grade sixes if they had, you know, if they, if it was like an hour and a half after lunch, so they'd gone through the napping sort of food coma. You mean if they were in a good yet, mood. <laughs> if they were in a good mood, but not too good of mood. Like we can't we can't figure out the most basic political things. But we can see the center of the Milky Way. In really high no, serious depth. I think that's it's pretty amazing. cool. And this is this is exactly like I, I agree it is amazing. Yeah, even if I was making fun of it earlier. 
Um, the problem with it is it's the kind of amazing where you need to sort of have at least a, 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 a pedestal of understanding before you realize how amazing it is. Because otherwise it's just like, oh, look, a sort of orange and black smudge, I guess. Right. Um, that's very far away. I mean, I've seen things that are very far away before in telescopes and stuff. So what's different about this one? Uh, yeah, no, and, and it, uh, it, it, it automatically kind of hurts your brain because you're like, a black hole is supposed to be something that is black. How can I see it? It's supposed to be something that's so heavy that even light can't escape. Again, yeah. how can I see yeah. it? Oh, my brain hurts. I give up. Dude, but that's the point. The point is that the really good stuff is is great is great art. I don't know. I think great experiences require climbing the mountain. No, no, I agree. I do agree with you. I do agree with you. Um, and I, I do have a, a bit of a budding, uh, uh, very, very amateur interest in this. Um, but I, I would, just before we uh, we move on from this one, I would also like to reprimand you for not adhering to uh, South African localization policies because you mentioned a, a, a visual telescope that was not the South African large telescope in Sutherland, which is, I think, one of the largest on the on in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's a visual telescope as well. Like the like the the web one you were talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, but the thing moment. about the James Webb one is that it's in <laughs> space. No, okay. Well, glorious South Africa is not quite yet putting things in space yet, but uh, Dude, we do also have our own giant visible spaces. One. Spaces official taxi man is South African. <laughs> the head of the taxi rank going to space uh, <laughs> is like I don't. That doesn't tickle my South African fancy, but. <laughs> if you want to be, if you want to be South African proud of, of no, 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 I hear you, dude. Sutherland's amazing, and and we're gonna have the world's biggest um, radio bat hive, bat yeah. hive mine. It's precisely What's gonna it be a bat the, hive the square mine. kilometer radio array. What's the it square called? mile? The square mile telescope radio. radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's also in the crew, I think. Yeah, dude, it's gonna be a square mile of bats clicking in space, as it were, and then hive minding their data. I really. Imagine, like, I mean, another way to put it is, imagine if you were, if if your center of consciousness was defined by security cameras, like four security cameras in four corners of a room pointing inwards. Hmm. That's your POV. Not four separate screens kind of distilling the images separately. No. One thing that it's like to experience all of that integrated. You'd be a lot more uh, vain. Because <laughs> you'd never not be able to see yourself. No. So the amazing... No, 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 no. So if your body... Firstly, you wouldn't necessarily have a body. Secondly, if you did have a body, you could right, make right. that body leave no, the room. You're you could, yes. The body could leave the room. But everything that's in that room, you're seeing it from all angles. I think right, right, that right. is really hard to wrap your head around because if there's one... Thing that humans ought to know about themselves is that you only ever see one side of the story at a time but mm -hmm. but the bat hive mind is 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 precisely the furthest that human beings have ever come and probably well at least in the foreseeable futures the furthest we will ever come to seeing both sides of the dice at the same time mm. and and that's kind of what it takes to look into the middle of the milky way and even further, which is what the, the Karoo one will look even further. It's the best. It's the it's the most amazing. Although we we, we had to end up sharing a little bit of it with Australia, um, which is unfortunate, but that's how it rolls. 
At least we got some of it. Most of it, I think we got most of it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay, shall we talk about the sad stuff? Now we've covered the happy stuff. Yeah, no, you you, 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 you front-loaded this with the happy things. <laughs> so let's talk about, the, you know, often I think a recurring theme on the show is what's the great threat to some heralded institution now? Um, so we did an episode a while ago where we talked about how much both of us like the U.S. Supreme Court and how as an institution, um, particularly in recent years, we think that it's done a lot of really lecker stuff uh, and it just works in a nice way it just it's it's it, it's you know gets people on board the justices are all polite with each other it produces these things we did a whole episode on uh but uh, unfortunately now there is a problem because someone has decided to leak a draft opinion from the supreme court and this draft opinion wasn't just any old draft opinion. It was on perhaps the most contentious issue in U.S. legal scholarly stuff and social politics of the last 50 years. And that is uh, this draft opinion, which is not finalized, uh, seems to show that a majority of justices on the court believe that Roe v. Wade and uh, what's the second one? Casey v. Yeah. Uh, should be overturned. ACV Planned Parenthood? Uh, Something like that. I read, I um, even read some of the case. Yes, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Right, right, Sorry. right. Um, and that the effect of this draft opinion, if it is ends up being the final version, is that uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey, which prevented any government in the US from banning abortion, will be overturned and it will once again be up to each individual state to decide its policies on abortion. Um, so there's a lot to be said about this. Uh, Gabriel, you had some ethical qualms about actually reading the text of this, I believe. Um, do you want to just talk about that a little bit to start off with? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, we've discussed, we've discussed this particular case on the show. I have I I have very strange right. we views. Did a, we did a whole yeah. episode on on abortion specifically. Yeah, I've I've got pretty strange views. Um, uh, which 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 satisfy neither side, um, and that's okay. I I know that it's that that clinical evidence. Uh, one of one of the sort of uh talking points if you could say such a thing around the wine and cheese platters in the philosophy department of old princeton uh 10 years ago was um empirical research that showed that with some issue that sometimes the more people talk about issues the more divisive they get uh in other words they can come in as like a four and a six and then they talk about the principle and then they come out then they leave as a one and a ten Yes, uh, there's a. This is, this is one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it will surprise no one to learn. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there's, there's. The, I, I was just about to give you another example of exactly the same phenomenon, but I forgot now. Anyway, sorry. Continue on. <laughs> okay, no worries. So, so I, 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 I do sort of see myself as like when I say I'm a radical centrist. I think my views on the abortion issue are... Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I've, I've remembered my <laughs> example. Um, the 
uh, I think this is part of uh, diversity, you know, sort of diversity and inclusion training. Yes. They often find, um, there have been some studies which suggest that it may in fact be completely counterproductive because if you take someone in there who's maybe got a little bit of some questionable sort of views on race or whatever, but actually, you know, they're they're actually basically all right to work with. Generally really commonsensical. Gonna, yeah. And then you bash them over the head with a kind of anti-racism, wokeness sort of, uh, you know, everyone has to be all hyper aware of everyone's race all the time. And all of a sudden they turn from being maybe a little bit subconsciously racist into pretty basically openly a bit racist. Nasty, nasty. And, and yeah. nasty and, and more so, likely to be bitter and, and uh, angry um, towards so, others. So I think that I think that example is not as pessimistic. So there you have an right. example of of if you have if, if if you attempt to indoctrinate people, it just turns out to be the case that you'll either succeed, which makes them pretty extreme, or It'll make them much worse, you, or you will counterproductively <laughs> make them rebel. Uh, and it's a little you know it's like the mask. Uh, uh, Lord, I'm full of like swear words today. Uh, P U S S Y protests that happened in america in the beginning of the pandemic you know these they were like if you wear a mask you're gay like no one would ever say that unless they were firstly an idiot but secondly in a situation where someone was forcing them to wear a mask like it just brings out the worst in yeah, 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 yeah. In no, uh, it's, this it's, example it's... that i'm describing is much worse than that nicholas because this is free and even debate so like yes. you've got like two people on each side and they go in as like moderates, but I kind of think this and moderates and I but kind of think that. This, this it's the opposite seem, of yeah. This does seem to be the a trend of 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 recent um, political social discussions, is that something about the way we talk about them now? Some people blame social media. Maybe it's something else going on. Seems to push people into these kind of extremes on not just the topics you'd expect, like abortion, but on a lot of topics. So my theory about that is, I, I do have a grand theory, which I think we've discussed before. If not, one should do a dedicated. But the grand theory is, is my grand theory is that human beings, premise one, it turns out that we, we share concepts. We're, we're competent users of a bunch of concepts. Uh, long before we're able to describe what it is to use the concept properly. So a simple way to put that is it's like we operate by instinct. Another way to put it is it just turns out that, you know, people can be quite good at driving without being very good at describing what it takes to be a good driver. Even when experts go and write down the rules of driving, I mean, they're pretty crazy. You look at what the requirements are. There are a very beautiful example is riding a bicycle. So it just turns out to be a physical fact that you can't turn left on your bicycle without first turning right. And there are sort of wonderful trick bicycles where they make it impossible to turn one way. And then you, you get on the bike and you, and you show them, look, you can't turn this way, but you can turn the other way. So why don't you just ride around and turn the other way and go in a circle? And then people fall off because, because hardly anyone realizes you've got to turn right first to go left or you've got to turn left first to go right. We can all do it but we don't realize it, right? So that's premise one. We, we're, we're better at doing things than we are at describing how we do them. That means premise two, when we share a project, we bring out the best in each other. 
We work really well together. This is why Nicholas and I had a, had a uh, thing about why we should build pyramids or go to Mars. Uh, there are all kinds of shared right. projects that are awesome and that would bring out the best in us. And why we think also like the idea that a meteorite or before COVID, we actually had this episode, like a meteorite or a plague comes along. Is that going to bring out the best in us? Not necessarily because it turns out that some people are going to are like going to cheer on <laughs> the destructive force and people will split. So a common enemy is not necessarily a shared project right. uh, because it might not yeah. – people might not it, understand taking out it, the enemy in the same way. They, they might fight each other in terms of – Right, right, because the, the, the central debate then can be like, um, firstly, is the enemy as bad as we think it is? And secondly, no, you're not fighting the enemy in the right way. Yes. So you're the enemy. Yes, you're the real enemy because you're not doing the fight in the right way. This has happened in every single society under a lot of stress. Interestingly enough, um, I remember reading before the, the just as this pandemic was starting, there was a lot of people talking about the 1917-1918 flu pandemic. Yeah. Um, there were quite a lot of similarities in the way that the public generally reacted to it. There was a oh, sort yeah. of uh, kind of suspicion of this. There were anti-mask protests. There were a lot of things like ripped straight from the headlines, <laughs> very aggressive enforcement of masking by law by various governments. <laughs> I mean, this is, it shows that uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. C'est plus change. Well, so okay, so that's so pr premise one. We're we're if you if there's a if there's a project that people are excited about together, they'll work nicely together because because the bicycle skills are going to come out. Premise two is what we're actually quite bad at doing is what we're really bad at what. Let me put it another way. It requires, premise two, it requires serious expertise to articulate the basic structure of reality, to articulate the framework of analysis. So I'm not rejecting philosophy. I'm not saying that you should laugh off all the eggheads who for the last two and a half thousand years have Close their oh, eyes terrible. and try to think I thought, about things. I thought we were finally going to meet up on this one. <laughs> but I am saying that 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 most people are really, really rubbish at it. And I include myself. Most of the time, almost all of the time, almost everyone is so bad at philosophy. Uh, and, and so what emerges from that is a, a sort of a potential grand pendulum swing of history idea which is that history swings between moments of 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 projects to mo where 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 the 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 real central issue is how to achieve this goal to moments of constitutional angst or debate or existential crisis where the thing that really motivates people most of the time is figuring out who we are what are we what is a woman what is racism? What is uh, America? Is America inherently yeah. racist? Is it inherently wonderful? All of these ontological questions. What is money? Is Bitcoin money? Is money money? If it's not backed by gold, is it money? People ask these questions of, is this a real thing? Is this really real? As, as one of our old professors said, is it really, really, really real? As if those are three different <laughs> questions, and in some ways they get to be. When people start having those debates, it turns out 
that we're in trouble. Okay, here's the flip side of the coin. In my view, if you want to get the right answer to the abortion question, you need to think about when personhood starts. So there is some conversation to be had there, uh, and it and it and 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 uh, as a matter of law, I think it would be better if that question is settled by elected representatives, as it has been in almost all of Europe, rather than by judges, right. as it was in America, and. And that's just to say the argument that we've already made before on 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 the show is that if Roe versus Wade gets overturned, that's probably a good thing. It's probably not going to make it much harder to have an abortion in most of America. In some parts of America, it's already almost impossible to have an abortion because there's yeah, Texas work around. Right. Texas has passed a law which I think allows individual citizens to sue anyone who provides an abortion i think it, it, even it's something before like that. that even yeah. before that there were these really um mischievous i would say laws they would say something like in an abortion clinic you the, the corridor has to be wide enough that you can drive a, a, a fire engine through it uh which is not something that anyone would really have to do and they sort of made it like it's wider than um than an ordinary hospital or as wide as an ordinary hospital, even though you don't need a gurney to be sort of cruising through the corridors. Anyway, the fire safety and health safety regulations that were stipulated for abortion clinics were made so severe that in some states, you know, I think the whole state of, is it Mississippi or whatever it is, there are only two abortion clinics left because it becomes so expensive to comply with it that the nearest abortion clinic is like 400, 500 kilometers away and then it might as well be in a different state. So, so that kind of I would I would describe that as 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 bad action, um, partly because it's not in keeping with the with the spirit of the law. Um, yeah, yeah. It's partly not... because it really does violate due process. And due process is a complicated thing because there is no right to abortion explicitly in the Constitution. But what the courts originally found was that because you have a right to due process, which means none of your rights can be taken away without some kind of court procedure for example they said therefore abortion can't be prohibited i don't believe that argument worked but i do think the argument works to say once you have a right to abortion established uh by some court precedent you can't have that right taken away because someone just makes it too expensive to have an abortion by artificially putting in regulations that literally is a a violation of due process there is also a a sort of uh, a kind of point here where you can create, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a sort of a, a political arms race to the bottom of the barrel by using regulation as a weapon to sort of subvert the law. Um, you yeah. know, you can do this by, you can do it in any field you want. It doesn't have to be abortion. You can be saying, no. like, oh, we don't like the, I don't know, we don't like the oil industry. So every single oil um Derek has to be shut down for 12 hours a day to check it to make sure that it's complying with safety and environmental regulations, right? And the moment both sides of politics start doing that, government just becomes a weapon with which to punish enemies in a yeah. very uh, petty way. And that can start an arms race where each side then is suddenly outpouring everything else that the other one does, uh, yeah. which is obviously not good for the social fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Victor Davis Hansen's favorite example is like there's sanctuary cities where federal immigration laws are not enforced in order to protect illegal immigrants. Um, (laughs) Sorry, and he's like, well, imagine there's a pushback by Republicans to say, you know, in 
in these cities, we're not going to enforce um, laws that require gun checks or background checks on people to buy guns, or we're not going to enforce environmental laws to protect uh, critters that are cute, but that we ultimately consider to be silly, or we're not going to enforce laws about uh, gas uh, fracking, drilling, oil piping, and so on. Anyway, so it's a it's a terrible thing. I, don't, I really don't like that side of things. Anyway, we, we, I think we're getting into the weeds potentially in terms of relitigating whether Roe versus Wade or Planned Parenthood versus Casey should be overturned. Right. I say we, or, I mean and. It's the same thing. Right. Uh, yeah. We. Uh, yeah. Our, our conclusion to that question, if you're not clear, is that we thought that they are bad law and they should probably be overturned. Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, but but not necessarily for the obvious reason. The the thing that you asked me a simple question and I and I and I fumbled answering it. Thanks, and I apologize. The simple <laughs> question is, w what's my ethical issue with reading this leaked judgment? My issue is that I don't even want to read it. I listened to that case to the to the to the case most recently heard. I have listened to historical uh, recordings. To the, to the, the the oral arguments section is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Right. Um, I have read. American academic scholars writing about it. I, I started thinking about it when I was in university a decade ago. Um, I, I really care about it. And I really care about the Supreme Court of the United States. I do think that it is, it's yeah. like the scientists who looked into the center of the galaxy. Those guys are the closest to that in terms of a, something like a political institution. I think it's a really, really yeah, good no, and, and I pretty much agree with you for the most part on, on that, for sure. Yeah, um, they've got some problems. There's people involved, so there's bound to be problems, but it turned, but they're really good. I feel like the, the, the document that's been leaked out, it's not final and it's not complete. And I just don't want to see it. I... I think that it feels to me like when there's a mass shooter, the first time there's a mass shooter, um, you really want to know who it is and what were they thinking. And people make documentaries. Right. How, how, how could this happen? Yeah. People make documentaries about their childhood and they and they've, and everyone reads their manifestos and there's this profound and they become world famous. And, right. Then the next and time, the, and the next time, and the, the next quid, time. We, the quintessential example of that is a Columbine. Columbine. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying that that's wrong the first time. I'm just saying that after a while, you realize that there's a moral ha hazard, that there's this esteem market moral hazard where you're, you allow your fascination with the abomination to uh, carry you to a point where you end up really satisfying the desires of bad actors by not right. disciplining your attention. Um, so and I'm disciplining my attention. I'm very curious. I'd like to know, but every, the, the, the hundred pages itself, I've not read every article that I've come across that wants to speak about it. I swipe left or right or whichever the one is on Tinder where you're rejecting. I, I don't <laughs> want to get involved until the full and final judgment comes out. And then I'd right. like to read that because I would like to transcend. And this is not exactly like the mass shooter thing in the sense that this is not one person trying to be famous, but this is someone who is trying to do whatever they can to distract from the full and final judgment, to right. have so much conversation take place in advance of that judgment's release on the left side 
oh, this is terrible, and we don't need to read the judgment because it's not even full and final anyway. And on the right side, bugger you guys. You leaked the document. We hate you. Like, there's no room. There's, there isn't sufficient room right now for a good and sober debate about yes. the merits of the judgment. I don't know if yes. the judgment's any good. Even if it comes to the right conclusion, or what I would consider the right conclusion, might do so in the wrong way. Might make some false claims. That would be bad. I would like to read the thing soberly and judiciously in my own time. Right. And that, that's exactly what I And I look forward to it. Yeah. To read this. It's, if it's a draft opinion, maybe some of the mistakes that it might potentially make are going to actually be ironed out. Maybe this is a version of the thing that uh, is kind of being created as like a sort of debate thing. And there'll be a final version that's like substantially different in some way. Who, who knows? This is the, yeah. this is part of the problem is that the process which is a very supposed to be a very sort of studied thoughtful quiet considered process that goes where the institution is just itself it's just the law clerks and the judges themselves uh all talking about this thing and then when they're finished they release it to the public it's like you know it's like for a journalist it's like sort of writing an article and then you get halfway through it and you think it's kind of finished, but you want to submit it to an editor, you know, like to maybe get some input on something or you need to look up a fact that you that you need to double check to see whether it's right. And then it suddenly gets published and you, <laughs> you, you, can, you can really skew the debate in a very unpleasant or stupid way if that happens, which is exactly why things like this shouldn't be leaked. Um, because it, it, it poisons the well of public debate on... <laughs> what is probably the most contentious issue in a lot of ways in American politics right now. Yeah, so two points on that. The one is that I think that understanding why this is a problem just requires a little bit of basic understanding of humanity. So it turns out that even very, even people who like each other and trust each other a lot struggle to deeply disagree all of the you know like in major ways in public uh without it getting sorted so part of the reason that i love the supreme court and i don't think love is too strong a word is the relationship between ruth bader ginsburg and antonin scalia right they were two of america's most accomplished persons two of America's brightest minds, most dedicated civil servants. These people really cared about serving humanity through serving right. their country. They were exceptional and they disagreed profoundly. And it would be so easy for them to hate on each other, as the Americans say. And instead, they really got along. Now, Sometimes it seemed like there was a shtick and it was a bit performative because people would, I don't know, when I first heard about their friendship, I kind of thought like, why is everyone trying to sell this so hard? But then I realized, oh. <laughs> wow, like no one in America, there, are, there is such a dearth of good relationships across the political aisle amongst very prominent and successful people that this really is a good example. And it's much less hokey, I think, than... The relationship, for example, between uh, John McCain and Barack Obama, which is also sometimes uh, bandied as a, a really sweet uh, across the aisle friendship. I say that because in the course of the political contest between Obama and, um, and McCain, 
they both said really disparaging things about each other. So their friendship afterwards just always had a it yeah. always had a kind of this opportunistic is, feeling about it. Even right. worse, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, right? Yeah. <laughs> Joe Biden, hard and not racist. Then she gets yeah, fired. We, I think I think we all know that that one's <laughs> that one's really not running on thing. I, I would like to submit, uh, and I wonder how you'll take this one. Uh, Michelle Obama and George W. Bush. Yeah, I think they probably. I think that's for real. Insofar as yeah. it's, they yeah. they they've hung out quite a lot, and they seem to genuinely enjoy hanging out with each other, despite the fact that, in a sense, Barack Obama was elected as a repudiation of Bush. Um, they have a sort of. Uh, I think I think Bush very much sort of let go of politics in a lot of ways once he was out, and and that has allowed there to be a, a much more genuine kind of president's club, you know. With, with with Obama, it's like, oh yeah, you're part of the firm, uh, welcome to the family kind of thing. Uh, and also yeah. between Bush and Clinton as well, which is another kind of funny thing, because in a sense, Bush was elected as a sort of a repudiation of Clinton. <laughs> is... Well, so I, I think Bush is kind of the common factor. My line about him had always been, like when I was a teenager, I was like, dude, president I would most like to have a beer with. He's got the swagger, he's so funny. Like someone threw a shoe at him and he's, and he, and he, and he dealt with that he, so charmingly he dodged like, it so well <laughs> he dodged it so well dude that guy amazing and i've and i know some people who've hung out with him the, um, the guy who threw the shoe i believe is currently an mp for one of the pro-iranian parties in iraq now actually so he also had a pretty successful career from the shoe throw bravo bush is bush is bush is genial he really is genial um and and that was also his greatest weakness terrible i thought he was Really not a good president. Um, but let's not really get the Iraq war either. Uh, <laughs> prosecuted by the amazing and wonderful, always good empire, uh, America. No um, lies depicted. So, so the, and, and I, and I, and I think Michelle Obama, I mean, I think she's got some political views that I deeply disagree with, like George Bush. Um, but I think that she's a pretty awesome sort of student of humanity in a in a in a slightly more lean back way than George Bush. He's a little bit more lean in, she's a bit more lean back. I think that goes really well together. And Clinton is like Clinton's a lot like Bush, really, really very genial. Yeah. Obama, I don't think so much. I think Obama's more of an administrator. Anyway, the point yeah. is that there are there are some examples you you have to stretch. Right, there is, these, are, these are very rare islands, and the, the alternative is is very much no, on and, the spare. I mean, and, and, and those are much the... less impressive examples because those yeah. are examples of people who are getting along after they've lost power. So, insofar as yes. they're still competing, they are in the emeritus club, and it, it sort of makes sense for them as retirees to kind of be together and kind of clashing. Uh, Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were good friends while passionately disagreeing. Yes, while who did battle opinions. Yes. every year. Uh, and every they still week. managed to, to, be, to be pleasant with each other. And they were just the easy. most extreme example of it. That was generally true of the court. And that was a hugely impressive side of it. Now, how does that work? How do you achieve that? Partly you achieve it by the process that you've described, by having conversations where 
there's room for persuasion. The great paradox of persuasion is that if someone is that it, there is a, a direct tension between persuasion and credibility. If I say I believe X on air in front of everyone and then Nicholas says a whole bunch of things that contradict X and actually show that a reasonable person should conclude not X, I've got two options. I can either say, okay, fine, you're right, not X, in which case I blow my credibility but prove that I'm persuasive. Or I can double down and say, no, 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 X, in which case I hold on to the the thought that you should take me seriously because if I say it, it's, it's going to be true. Um, but I do that <laughs> by abandoning the thing that's most likely to be true. This is a terrible problem. We solve it sometimes, very, very rarely, by changing our minds in public. But the thing about changing your mind in public is you can only do it once in a while. Otherwise, you really are incredible. Yes. So the rest of the time we do it by and having conversations in private, I think, and I think also credit private, and right. then coming out in public afterwards. Once we've deliberated, once we've spitballed, once we have gone through it all, this is why this is the grand lesson of the of the book on bullshit. Is that on the one hand, bullshit, which is not the same as lying, which is just yes. saying things where you don't even care if it's true or not. You're just sort of saying things. Uh, you know, Donald Trump saying that the 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 sun shone on his inauguration like it shone on no other inauguration ever before. That's not a lie. He's not trying to trick anyone. It's that's that's BS. The thing about BS that's is that it's very very terrible because someone just doesn't care about the truth. So if someone is doing it all the time, they're the hardest to deal with. A liar you can kind of deal with. BS is it's hard to deal with. But the other thing about BS is that you can't get rid of it because it's essential to refining your thought. Because that's how you create the gray zone in between committing yourself to a view, where then if you change it, it's this big deal. You can only do it very rarely. It undermines your credibility. And um, and just being stuck. So, so I think I think I think you use the word credibility there. There's the, the thing that you lose. And I think that that's actually perhaps too soft of a word because it's credibility, but it's also like pride. And your sort of self-image as this, like uh, you know, intelligent person out there. So you can, and, and you know, particularly in public, when a lot of the people who are talking are people who are either quite accomplished or quite ambitious. The especially in politics, right? Where, <laughs> where let's all just the say law. That, uh, I mean, being yeah, a all the law. Judge. Yeah, a lot of let's. let's I think yeah. I think from a, on a sort of personal level, there's a lot of um, uh, lawyers who think that they are uh, pretty clever dudes. Um, and particularly if you're the kind of person who can get onto the Supreme Court Which in the United the States. Scotus, like, right, you, better right, be, right. you better be extraordinarily clever. And so, you know, going out and then changing your mind in public in a sort of debate there is even worse because it's like there's, there's an element of kind of like almost humiliation attached to it. It's like I'm not just sacrificing my credibility. I am submitting to you in a way. And that, that is a reason why I think people are also just not willing to do it in public. And, and this is all very meta because the whole thrust, if you listen to the oral arguments um, on this new matter, I can't believe I can't remember the name of the, of the new case, actually. Um, but uh, anyway, the matter in attempt to overturn uh, Pernod versus Casey and Roe versus Wade, the whole... The, the government side did not argue 
that Roe versus Wade is good. They literally didn't try and make that argument, that it's consistent, that it's good, that it makes sense. Their, their major thrust was that it was stare decisis, was that it's been decided for the last 50 years, the court, the Supreme Court said you can't, it doesn't ban all abortions. You, um, it doesn't ban the states from banning all abortions. So states could prohibit abortions after a certain amount of time, after 12 weeks or 16 weeks, whatever it is. In fact, it shifted. But this has been the law. And if you contradict it now, if you change your mind, if the court changes its mind after 50 years, that is so devastating to the court's credibility. People are going to ask themselves, why is the court changing its mind? They're going to say, well, because a bunch of Republican presidents campaigned on the line that if you elect them, they will put in new justices who will get rid of women's rights to abortion. And, and they put in those justices and they've gotten rid of those rights. Um, it's going to convince the people that the that the judges, that the court doesn't make up its mind on the basis of principle. It makes Yeah, it's just mind. another arena of power where people contest with each other and the legal arguments are nothing but a fiction to express the power of whoever was lucky enough to appoint the judges at the time. This is how scary it is to change your mind, right? Is that is that it suddenly becomes questionable. Well, why are you only saying this now? Well, it must be convenient for you to say it now. So you can't be, the thought that you're just simply a truth teller and that you're reliable, that goes away. And so we can come up with any other story about you being a craven knave. It's a really scary thing to change your mind, which is why. Yeah, and but for evidence of that, yeah, go and look at people in the Republican Party who've heavily criticized Trump and then changed their minds and some of the discussion that's followed their career since, uh, uh, notably yeah, one J.D. Vance, who is the Republican nominee in Ohio for Senate. And who um, has had uh, to fend off a lot of fights there. He'll, hillbilly blues. Yeah. Hillbilly I mean, elegy. Also, hillbilly elegy. Yeah, um, lying Ted Cruz. That that was the funniest one. <laughs> right. And then the picture towards the end, I mean, I remember laughing at it. And this is exactly why it's so hard to change your mind. Ted Cruz, he he fights Trump very aggressively for the nomination. And by the end of the campaign, there was a picture of him circulated of him sitting on the phone calling voters to come out and vote for Trump. And there was yeah. just they captured it at a moment when he wasn't looking super pleased. No. And it is I, I felt pain seeing that picture because <laughs> it looked like a beaten a beaten whipped dog yeah oh no so much because and and specifically i mean that was a very good example of it being difficult to find uh an epistemic story what is epistemic story epistemology is just the study of how you come to know things so Okay, I say that there is no one in the house because I've been in the house. I went through the kitchen. I went through the dining room. I went upstairs. There was no one in the house. And then someone phones me and says, dude, there's a basement and there's someone in the basement. And so I, 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 I'm like, where's the basement? And they say, it's underneath the television screen in the kitchen. And so I go into the television screen and I lift up it and it's like an old funky one. So there's actually an underneath and I see there's a little trap door and I go into the basement and there is like a tiny gimp. And I'm like, okay, I've changed my mind. I've gone from thinking there's no one in the basement to thinking there is someone in the basement. 
that's an epistemic story where where I don't lose too much credibility. You can sort of understand how I've come to learn things. It's very difficult in the case of Ted Cruz uh, going from saying Donald Trump is the most dangerous thing to the American Republic since, you know, <laughs> whatever, uh, to, to like phoning people to say, hey, you better go vote for Trump. It's hard to find an epistemic story. It's easy to find a motivational story, an incentive story. You know, at this stage, he's incentive to just knock Trump because that's what he thinks is the best strategy to win the nomination himself at this stage it makes sense for him to celebrate trump because that's going to be the only way for him to hold on to his uh senate seat so 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 it's very difficult for a court of course so there's a so there's a really good reason for the court never to change its mind and this is why and this is why i was emphasizing that the that the state in the recent case alabama versus whatever didn't even have to or texas versus whatever um, didn't even have to argue that Roe versus Wade was good because they said, even if this law is bad, even if it doesn't make sense, that's still not a good enough reason to overturn it. And that is the principle of stare decisis. It's not good enough to say that this law is bad law. If it is created by the court and it stood around for a while, you can't just say it's self-contradictory. You can't right, just say it's a- wrong. You've got to show that society can't handle it. It's got to be somehow egregiously bad. And the standard right, a traditional really is conservative by... story yeah. uh, is that if something has stood the test of time, as Roe has for 50 years, there must be some value to it. And you can't just go and willy-nilly change your mind just like that uh, on it. And, and so that's been one of the amusing things to this is, is, is that dimension of how the you know, the side that normally argues that we must conserve the past tradition is kind of arguing the one thing and then the past that the group that's always saying no we need to progress towards a better future yeah is 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 saying no no we need to stick with the the old reading of the law but anyway um, Indeed. no sorry, exactly right <laughs> so and, and so i just wanted to say that that clarence thomas is says you know dude story science is very important but it has to be the case that the court does change its mind because once the court's made up its mind, literally there's no other way for things to rectify. And so, the, and he keeps drawing back to the example of Brown versus Board of Education, where the court in 1880-something had ruled that separate but equal is legit. Was fine, yeah. And the reason the court made that ruling, by the way, is it was a progressive ruling at the time. It was trying to protect black people from... Um, uh, overt, separate but not equal uh, municipal uh, segregation of basic services. And then it, you know, so much like with BEE, separate but equal, you just listen to it. It sounds aspirational. It sounds like uh, there's a good intention that you could find there. I'm, I don't want to get into whether that good intention is sincere or not. Um, right. Certainly the judge was a white burden supremacist who thought basically black people were inferior. Um, right. and and couldn't be trusted all the way uh but you know also thought like children they need to be t- they're even more wonderfully innocent you know yeah anyway I, I i'm not a fan of white burden supremacists of people who but uh be that as it may you can see the good intention in, in the vicinity and it and it doesn't work out and there's no way to overturn it excepting uh in in this case that goes to the supreme court and the supreme court says look we've been saying separate but equal is okay for all this time but it turns out that it's not okay because it turns out that it's just not achievable it turns yeah, out it's that never equal you you write it down 
you can write anything down. You can write down two plus two equals five. Well done. Okay. Don't make it so. Right. Uh, and it just turns out every time you write down separate but equal, and then you check the facts, ain't equal. Is separate, <laughs> but it's not even really that separate. It turns out that no. there's always like black dudes cleaning the toilets in the white flipping uh, hotel. You know, anyway, really, really rubbish law gets overturned in a really good way. And Karen Summers says, okay, story to science is important not to change your mind often, but extremely important to be able to change your mind once in a blue moon. And the very argument that centers the court challenge about does this fall on this side or that side of that basic sort of divide implies an understanding of, of the human challenges to our psychology that also explain why the court deliberations need to be private and protected. Uh, it's precisely for the same reasons of, of the difficulties of changing your mind in public and the importance of being able to change your mind. And so the usefulness of there being this in-between space, this confidential space where it's easier to spitball, BS, make mistakes uh, and so forth. So that's the one uh, point that I wanted to make. The other point I can maybe make more briefly is that I do think that um, it's nice to remember the separation of roles. So almost everyone in the American media on the right uh, has, as far as I can tell, sort of jumped to the conclusion that this must have been deliberately leaked, most likely by a law clerk, which means right. by a some, law clerk. some kid who went to an Ivy League school and got a wonderful law degree and, you know, just... Uh, really, really goody two-shoes gets the opportunity to go carry the files for a, for a Supreme Court justice and go look up the things. And, you know, they say, go look this up, go look that up. One of those people, um, you know, in their late 20s, but working really hard for not that much money. Impressive people, most likely to be uh, right. the, the top future of the pool of Supreme Court justices, possibly. Exactly. That one of these people, and that's exactly why this allegation is so important that one of these people has deliberately made the call that this needs to be leaked. Right. So Believed that this judgment was a fundamental attack on human rights and therefore it needed to be out in the public space. And then and there, the hope is that <clears throat> presumably by putting it out there in the public, you get some outrage and that sobers up the court and gets them to change their mind. That's plausible to me. Um, I can see a world in which that's what happened. But I don't think that that's the only option. Right. So there's, there's a couple of theories. Can I, can I, can I suggest uh, something? So there's a theory that someone on the left deliberately leaks. Someone on the left, uh, uh, like you say, younger law clerk goes out and says, you know, this is a destruction of women's rights. I am going to take a stand here. I'm going to put this out in public. And hopefully either the lawmakers or the public or someone will do something about it. And either they'll codify abortion into law so that this doesn't really matter anymore. Or so, which, which they're trying to do. Which is, yes, which they are trying to do. Um, or there'll be so much pressure on the justices that because this is a draft reading, they will change their minds um, under the pressure and, and, and relent and then go back to, to, to defending the status quo. Because it's, I think it's a 5-4 judgment. So five of the justices are in favor of repeal and four are against. So in other words, if only one changes their mind... It, 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 it can swing the thing. 
There's another theory, which is that someone on the right of the court leaked it on purpose to make sure exactly this whole point we've just made about why you can't change your mind, um, about the costs of changing your mind in public, that there was this majority at some point um, on the court for overturning this, this, this right-wing clerk or this right-wing justice or whatever says, ah, you see, now that we've got everyone's names to a piece of paper here, if we put it out in public, none of them can go back on it. Maybe he heard that, I don't know, like... Uh, yeah, one of them is about to change his mind. Right, he's going to change his mind. And so he goes... Well, like, see, dude, he now... just read the draft and he's worried about it. He's going to change exactly, ship. Okay, exactly. leak it. Yeah, leak it, leak it. And then uh, that guy will be locked in because he'll be thought of as a wimp, a traitor, a coward, uh, uh, you know, a, Someone a nothing Someone who's attacking the credibility of the court. Because if he changes exactly. his mind after the outrage, it's going to seem like the outrage is what caused him. That to he just blows mind, in the Even wind. if he was already committed to changing. Precisely. Uh, so that's one theory. And then there's the other theory, which is that the, the accidental, which is that. Wait, wait, wait. No, I get to say this one. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's your favorite one. <laughs> so I I really like Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, I think that he seems to encapsulate what I think of as the most appealing wrong judicial philosophy. Um, you know, he really has said things like, how do you figure out what to do? Yeah, we... I like we, we my we... eyes. I think, <laughs> what would I like to see happening? And then I open my eyes and look in the law to find a tool to make it happen. Right. When his replacement came in, we talked a lot about. Uh, yes. Uh, so, about and he's really old and he was like fumbling through the numbers. Like he had to, he was chased off the court, I think for the good reason that he is. How do I put this politely? So it's not that I think he's gone profoundly senile. There was, I, I mentioned long ago um, the story uh, by Robert Brandom, who is uh, possibly the most reputable philosopher at Pittsburgh University, top tier, you know, one of the tied, one of the top three philosophy departments in America. He's a Hegel scholar, and he was close with Richard Rorty, who um, was a famous pragmatist American philosopher in the second half of the 20th century who kind of I blame for a lot of wokeism uh, because he was an overt ethnocentricist. He was like, here's how you deal with all of the problems that we've come across. You should be an ethnocentricist. But what's amazing is our ethnicity is, uh, it's, it's, you know, is like America or something, which is not bad, but he came up with the idea of thinking there's an American epistemology and that's different to a, an evil Russian empire epistemology. Uh, then once once you start thinking that facts are indexed by nation, uh, it just turns out that you've you've already given up on <laughs> on reality. Uh, anyway, so he 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 was a really good guy who I think also made some mistakes. But like Stephen Pryor, I've got a lot of respect for his his writing. Anyway, so Branham tells this story about hanging out with Rorty and talking about John McDowell, who's a South African philosopher at Pittsburgh and certainly the most respected South African philosopher that's alive or ever has been, probably, uh, if you don't count John Smuts. And they say, you know, what they agree about is this is how this is how things are. For the most part, humans are pretty competent. They're going around as if they're on the grass, but sometimes they fall off the cliff. And how do you tell if you've fallen off the cliff? Well, you can tell you've fallen off the cliff if, if, the, if you think your only options are 
dogmatism or nihilism. Like, if you think, well, either I've got to give up on believing anything or I've got to insist that, you know, right is right and this is right. No, and we don't just believe the no thing. We believe it properly. We believe it. We believe it the best. No one else believes it as well as us. Okay, if you're stuck with those two choices, like you've got to just take this on faith or or you can't believe anything, they think you're you're you it's probably you've already jumped off the cliff. And what you need to do right. is rewind but yourself and and it, find the mistake, figure out where you jumped off because there's better options. Uh, <laughs> not 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 to not to throw too much of a tangent in here, but this like is already this, super tangent. This, yeah, yeah this the story between the story between a tangent within a tangent. The story between nihilism on the one side and dogmatism on the one side is like there's a there's a certain kind of young man in the West who appears to reach this fork in the road. And yes. if they're a white dude, they go towards 4chan, 8chan, uh, white nationalist nihilism, which is more than an ideology, as far as I can tell, just a kind of nihilistic hatred of everyone and everything. Um, yeah. Or if they're a young Muslim man, they might go, well, I'm going to go down the dogmatic route and then they join ISIS or something like that. So, <laughs> so we see this in a very real way, actually, in, in the kind of terrorist the society manages to pop out these days. Dude, well put. So, and, and, and always the feeling is, I, I, the, the point I'm trying to make is that that the th that you've already made the mistake earlier, and the earlier mistake was pretty benign and controllable. Like once you're already falling off the cliff, it might be that the last steps in the journey, as it were, like it's quite hard to, you know, once someone's once someone's in that position, you can empathize and think, well, if you were in that position, you'd probably also make the same screw ups. Um, uh, because it's sort of almost like beyond one's control at a certain point. Not that some, someone shouldn't be held responsible, but it's just like it, it feels like there's this kind of inevitable logic once you've made certain mistakes and you're in that kind of framework. And and the better thing to do is 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 keep on the safe ground of common sense. Uh, to beware of looking too hard into the center of the galaxy because you might not be able to uh, come back from occupying the right. bat hive mind uh, a, with your faculties intact. <laughs> there's a Nietzsche quote about that, isn't there? Yep. You stare into the enigma uh, too long and, and the enigma stares right back into you. Right. So this is the, that amongst others. Um, so the, the thought is that Rorty and Random agree on is that a philosopher that's doing a good job is often going to end up putting up fences. And they're going to put up fences before the edge of the cliff. So... It's like you can go to the park and you can stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, but there's a bit of a fence there to help you to fall off, to, to stop you from falling off the edge. And they're like, you know, it seems like we're doing such a good service to the world, but then now and then you see a guy like McDowell who, who is just so unformula. It's, it's really difficult to read his texts. But like, dude, I have read some of his most famous essays honestly a dozen times. And got a different impression every time because because it's like a jigsaw where all of the puzzles, puzzle pieces fit together but it's in so many dimensions that they fit together in different ways every time you look at it it's an it's i must tell you it's a nightmare frankly um but it's also it it, it inspires words like ingenious and the thing is if you read it often enough you find yourself in the position where you mm, can't quite Mm, find out where he's wrong. Like you keep trying to put your finger on the button, but then 
you realize he shifts the dimensions and then the button's not there anymore. In fact, it never was there in the first place. And then you try again, it's a problem. Anyway, so they said the thing about McDowell is that he never makes the basic mistakes of Descartes and Kant and, and, and the, the kinds of uh, terrible mistakes that they think that sort of everyone is making and that, they, and that they're pushing back against. Uh, they think he's, it, he's really amazing, but he's unformula. So they say, uh, I think they say goat, but I'm going to say springbok. He's like a springbok that is able to dance on the rocks on the edge of the cliff without ever falling over. And so he doesn't need the fence. And in some ways it feels almost churlish to put up the fence when you see an amazing springbok jump up and down the rocks. But then they turn back at themselves and they say, well, the thing is, he's like a four-legged springbok. And what we are doing is for the most part riding for two-legged human beings. Okay? Who need fences, so we're going to keep putting them up. The analogy with Stephen Breyer, Justice Breyer, is that he his his method was so unformula. Scalia's method, textualist, read the words, go back to what the original meaning was, check the dictionary at the time, kind of a thing. That's what it's going to imply. Strict formula. Breyer, it's like close your eyes, think about what justice means, figure out what the right thing would be to come out of this, then go and find tools in the law. It's like as far from formula as you can go. And I think often he got it right. I think for the most part he got it right. It's just sometimes he got it wrong. So he was like a springbok dancing around, accepting, you know, uh, slightly unsure-footed one. The point is, the difference between four legs and two legs, the point is that it takes much more mental acuity. It takes much more RAM and bandwidth to sustain the unformula process of jurisprudence and so briar gets a little bit older and he suddenly gets much less like reliable so it's a problem so you've got to get him off the court he's kind of the first dude it's a historic first dude is kind of ushered off the court in the way that he is like people are volunteering that he's about to resign uh it's leaked you know the, the first big leak was that it was leaked that he said he's going to resign and then it's like did he really say that or did someone just, quote-unquote, leak that, uh, knowing that everyone would celebrate his career yeah, and say, also, what a wonderful guy, thank God he's going, and then he would have to... <laughs> it's, probably also, it's probably also a reminder that, uh, you know, a lot of... Um, yeah, a problem like someone thinking that it's okay to leak this judgment doesn't come in one day. It sneaks up over a long period of time. And this is why I'm, I'm, I'm centering around Briar, because he has been at the center of the of the only real leak that no one else is connecting um uh in scotus and i i kind of envisage the scenario where he's chatting with like a young journalist who's like i want to talk about i want to do an interview with you you're resigning let's do a little bio interview for whatever and he's like okay and then they ask about this case and he's like size and he's like well i can't tell you <sighs> but he sighs in a way that kind of gives the game away. And then he's like, dude, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt this interview, but I just have to go to the toilet because he's a very old man. He, it takes a, it takes a substantial period of time, substantial enough for the enterprising journalist to slot in a USB and download the word document of 112 pages. Uh, that's sitting on Briar's laptop of the judgment. And Briar is not a sophisticated dude. He has not like put some auto. 
he's actually disabled the thing that automatically locks the laptop because frankly it's complicated he can he can never remember his password he can't rem- <laughs> dude no one else can remember his password <laughs> like he's yes. like no, i'm sure i know what it is i just i want you to figure it or, out or, no one else can so you know so it gets robbed he it, it gets robbed off of his desk I think that's an. In, I really do think that's a plausible scenario. Another version of it is that someone overhears the clocks at the bar, or or uh, classic I, I espionage, and then yeah, rip something off one of their laptops at the coffee shop. I, I've also heard a version where um, one of the law clerks uh, for one of the lefty justices happens to share is like a roommate or something with a, a lefty activist, and he he's working on the judgment, and you know he's behind, so he maybe like prints it or takes it home or something, you know, as he's supposed to, and then he leaves it, and then his his roommate is like, "Oh, what's this? Oh my goodness, <laughs> this needs to go straight to Politico." And so here's why that story matters. I think that if someone, if 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 a justice or a law clerk deliberately you know, picked up the phone, called a journalist and said, dude, you've got to check this out. I'm sending it to you. You've got to publish this. Then that person has broken a promise. And that's really bad. Uh, and I don't, and sometimes it's justified to break promises. I don't think it's justified in this instance. Um, we were sort of having a debate about it, like on the grounds of free speech. I think you you see the free speech argument from the other side, which is to say, if some enterprising journalist managed to steal this document, I'm going to say as a journalist, good for them. I really do believe if you're a journalist, like there are just about the only thing I think you're really not allowed to do is deliberately publish the names of spies that are in deep cover and that are going to be killed uh and these can be police people that have embedded themselves in gangs or in you know uh government spies that have embedded themselves in in foreign countries whatever if you're going to deliberately publish the name of someone who's going to be killed for sure uh you shouldn't be doing that but other than that my sense is that journalists you know the public interest argument i think it would be better if this thing had never been published but if you're a journalist and you're making a different call and you go ahead and do it, I think that's right. I think that it's always from a journalist's point of view justified, with that exception that I've mentioned, to say, look, here's what society needs, more information now. Not waiting, go for it. So and that's your that is very specifically your job. Yeah. And you know, it's always going to be embarrassing to the institution involved. So the arguments about well, you're humiliating the court, you're making its deliberation process more cumbersome. No. Life, including democracy, is built in an adversarial and competitive way. And that means it's the court's job to keep its secrets and it's journalists' jobs to try and expose those secrets. In the same way, journalists should be trying to expose the intellectual property of businesses that are doing all kinds of funny things. Journalists should be trying to expose the inner workings of caucuses. If I can get into the ANC caucus or the DA caucus or the EFF caucus and hear in their private meetings what they're really saying and then I leak that information, that's me doing my job. If I lie in order to get there, that's me doing my job. The reason journalists were called muckrackers, muckrakers, the reason that they used to have a very low social status uh, until kind of the 2013 social justice era is because journos are like whores. To do your right. job properly, 
is going to involve some things that are not really for you know discussing uh, <laughs> at the dinner table, especially if there's children around. Um, I really believe that. So, and I think this is a really important point that kind of no one on the right really wants to take to heart. And so, there's a negligence aspect. Like clearly, the court has not defended its secrets. Um, yes. But then there is an open question about like to what extent is this an amazingly ingenious journalist and to what extent is this uh, – and that's why I like the Stephen Breyer example because if you think of the old man, you've got a version where he's properly senile and this really is not his fault. Like he's just totally bamboozled by a brilliant young con artist. And then there's another version where, you know, you kind of get the feeling that he's like – sort of winking a little bit when he says he doesn't know what's going on and then says, you know, it's it's looking, it's right on my laptop right now. I'm right. looking gives at a it. Hint. Right. Gives a hand and there's like, oh, I had too much broccoli. I'm going to go to the loo for the next 45 minutes. You know, there's a version of that story where, where it's like a cartoon mm -hmm. of what was the old line of the King of England? You know, I just wish that, I wish someone would take care of that priest. Like it'd be really Who? convenient. Who will rid me? This turbulent priest. You know, and then someone goes to kill him and he's like, well, Henry, I didn't ask anyone to kill him. It's, it wasn't an order. This is just a pure coincidence. Uh, so there is, so you know, anyway, so I like that third example because I think it's got that, that grayscale. And that grayscale brings up the fact that there are different political interests. Never mind the Democratic-Republican one, never mind the pro-anti-abortion one. There's the, there are the competing interests in keeping secrets and exposing as much information as you can. And and civilization works when that when there's a tension between those two. You expose everything, and in the Bob Dylan line, everyone becomes invisible. Uh, <laughs> if you if you keep all the secrets, uh, there is no accountability for power. Miss a power abuse. So we've got to have it's a tension. Life life is very difficult, as it turns out. And and what this case exposes to me is uh, is a particular failure that I think has the short-term consequence of distracting from people having what I would like to consider, you know, I'm saying there's this pendulum swing between when we've got projects that we're working on together right. and, and, and that's when things go we well. Are. Questions about who we are. You know what? We're in this era of questions about who we are. And maybe, maybe the way to solve that is to just have the conversation properly. Like, I really would like to have the ontological conversation about why, uh, why most people's views on on when personhood begins uh, are open to challenge, and for people to just at least feel what the trade-offs are. What's better about saying conception? What's better about saying first trimester? What's better about saying heartbeat? What's better about saying second trimester? What's better about saying, as I would like to say that. At some level, the convention is constituted by what we agree on, so that we really could make different choices, and and that we should be careful to make those choices with a balance of interest consideration, um, uh, which in effect would come out as saying basically the same thing as Europe, where you've got democracies pretty much everywhere that have said you should be allowed to have abortions, but only for the with first. Only for the right. first like eight weeks, eight to twelve weeks, not as far as America, like less of a period than America, 
but you should be allowed to do it. I think the balance of interest arguments get you there. And I think the constitutive argument helps you to see why then it's not murder. But anyway, that's a long story. I think it's like those have that conversation. Yeah. We're the, not going to have that conversation because of, of this leak. That's the short-term effect. Yeah. The long-term effect is it undermines the Supreme Court, and this is the thing that scares me the most. It undermines the Supreme Court's credibility in the eyes of so many people. Yes. And right now, the Republicans kind of trust the court more than the Democrats, but less than half of all Americans trust the court. For the first right, and, that, and, and ever since, in fact, the abortion question has been one of the things that's really made the right not trust the court because there was this feeling that the court was acting like a legislature. And yeah. as a result, it, it couldn't be trusted. And so now the left has a reason to not like it as well, um, which they used to be in favor of it. Uh, so, so what uh, happens the next time the left is in charge? Like, right, so right now the, the right is, is not going to touch the court. Because even if they were in charge tomorrow, which they won't be, yeah. Uh, and despite and despite the best but hopes they won't of touch Democrats, it they're, they're in the majority. Hey, yeah, yeah. As, as despite the best hopes of Democrats who think that this is going to swing the midterm elections, I think that that's very unlikely. I think the Dems are still cruising for an absolute clobbering. Um, totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. I don't think this is going to change that. But what it is going to change is in twenty twenty six or twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty, whenever it is. That the Democrats next get into power, it might right, very so well be that the court so goes seven two, right? So yes. Biden, let's say Biden gets voted out in twenty twenty four, he doesn't get another uh, justice to replace. Then in twenty twenty five, you've got a, a a Republican president, president and let's Ron just DeSantis. say, let's say DeSantis gets elected, the Republicans mm-hmm. have the House and the Senate, so they can approve their justices. Immediately, you have. Uh, the oldest chaps uh, retiring. So like you've Clarence got like Thomas, yeah. Clarence Thomas stepping down to be replaced very quickly by by someone a lot like Clarence Thomas. Yeah, one of his friends. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that there is anyone in the world as conservative as Clarence Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure he keeps a list in his desk. It, it, it's stapled to him at all times. So if he dies, the moment they, they like, sort of take off his shirt, they'll see to be replaced by. <laughs> <laughs> so so and then so you've got a couple of those and then you've got some seriously you know what if who are the who are the democrats on the court uh sotomayor and kagan you know they mm. can probably b- both go through another term but maybe DeSantis gets two terms can they both go through two more terms uh judge jackson can go for many more but i don't know if that uh kagan and sotomayor can you know, an accident happened, whatever. Someone has a heart attack, whatever it is. I I'm, I'm mm. really hope that doesn't happen. But it's not impossible to imagine Republicans having 7-2 on the court. Yes. And then the Democrats getting elected after that on a, on a, on a kind of Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders extreme ticket. And, and I... So, so here's, here's what I... And very then they say, we... Let me, let me just finish my specific thing. They say... It's 7-2. The court is political. There are so many things that they've blocked. There's so many things that they've allowed. There's so many things that they've changed. They're way too powerful. And if we go and try and replace these judges one by one, we're never going to get the court back to an even space. So what we need to do is add another seven positions to the court or six positions or whatever it is. 
all our loyal ones. Yeah. So that it and becomes then... a fifteen-person court, and it's eight-seven in our favor. So look, we're not trying asking for too much. We're just asking for a one-person majority. But if they do that, and they have argued for doing that, yes, and they and I never took those arguments seriously because they sounded to me like Palestinians saying they want to destroy Israel. It's just like, how on earth are you going to do it? There is something. Right. It's a BS statement because you can never like do you, it. And you, you, you might sort of emotionally want to, but the tools do not exist for you to accomplish such a task. But after this, I think they're one step closer to saying the tools do exist. Mm. Because now what they will say is that so, the court stole the election from Al Gore and gave it to George Bush in 2000. And this was the most outrageous coup uh, uh, that there ever has been. And then the court took away women's rights to have an abortion, overturning 50 years of things, showing that it can just change its mind uh, without any good reason. Right. And in between, it said that that money is speech so that you can uh, have as much money in politics as you want. And that's helped. And they've made bad rulings on gerrymandering. Then you start going through the, the slightly more mundane things. But you start with those two really powerful points and you have a pattern. And you say the only way we can address this is by packing. Right. So so my specific fear on that is that how did how did you know the, the court get changed to being an originalist court? It's because the uh the people on the right built this institution called the Federalist Society, which crafted a whole sort of infrastructure of training legal clerks in a in an originalist way and that kind of thing. And my fear is that someone who's really in favor of court packing will do something similar on the left, that they will You'll, you'll get a lobby group that forms whose sole mission is to reclaim, quote-unquote, the, the Supreme Court. And the moment an institution like that exists, it will never really go away. It's like a, it's like, a, this is, <laughs> you know, think about, um, a great example of this I always think about is a, you know, like a kind of anti-smoking foundations or groups that were in favor of gay marriage. It's like, we've achieved our goal, but... We no, we want to keep our jobs. Yeah, so let's make sure we keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. Um, and that's why you know vapes are now under attack by a lot of the same organisations that wanted to get rid of cigarettes. Um, and it's not clear whether that's what they should be doing. But that aside, uh, no, dude, I think fear, it's totally right. Yeah, yeah. is is They'll that, is, is of that kind of institutional setup right? Yeah. And the moment it exists. It's going to be a constant thorn in the side of the republic. So my hope is that this all passes rather quickly. That there's something that distracts everyone from this debate. No way, and... dude. Not even not even the war against the even Russian Russian Empire is sufficient to distract America's glitterati. Uh, I think, from... Dude, you have no you have no idea how depressing it was. For, you know, trying to follow the war on Twitter, and then I mean, you know, that's pretty depressing already. But. <laughs> To suddenly have half of the open source intelligence accounts and things I I, I I follow, they were talking exclusively about the conflict and then just mouthing off about you know this for a couple of days, like spending no time but tweeting furiously and arguing with everyone about however they felt about this case, whether they were pro or anti, whatever. Yeah. And I was just like, oh no, no, there is no escape. You're supposed to be a bunch of military nerds sitting in basements counting like tank trades and things like that, and you yeah. can't even you can't even do that. You, you have to get involved, right? You have to involved. you have to get the gloves out, even though these are guys who are like clearly 
you know, it's they're, they're like not super political. A lot of them. Some of them were a little bit kind of lefty. Some of them were a little bit kind of right. But it's like it's like red meat to the Twitter crowds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I th I think it really, I I I think the deep mystery in abortion is that. I don't know. You've you've said the word deep mystery at nine minutes to two hours, so be careful about what comes next. <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 a really short point. I think it's controversial, but it but I think it's a short point. I think the problem is that really is Roe versus Wade. The 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 thought that this is that abortion is about a woman's right to choose. That's the wrong thought. Right, and we it we makes have, it sound. We have made that. It makes it sound as if, uh, you know, by by analogy, you could say, look, men men have got to get where they're going, and uh, you know, you're in a patriarchal society, for example. Men have got to get where they're going. It's very important. They they all kinds of work, and so if you're at a traffic light uh, and there's a man there, he should just be able to go through the red light, sort of like an ambulance or a fire engine. Sensible and, policies for a happier world. <laughs> And if there's a woman in the way, that's like she needs to get out the way. And if she doesn't get out the way, out the way, he can just drive through her and kill her. Because it's look, he can choose to stop and waste his time, uh, or he can choose to to go through her. The, that's the view, right? Um, now that's not the view of the court in Roe versus Wade exactly. What Roe versus Wade says is. We're not going to decide the question on whether a person is being killed in the first two trimesters. Instead, we're going to say whatever view you take on that, it's a woman's right to choose. So they're saying, well, maybe there's no person there. And then it makes sense to say that it's a woman's right to choose. But they're also saying maybe there is a person there, in which case they're saying a woman can choose to kill someone because the alternative would be a very inconvenient pregnancy. And pregnancy is just about the most inconvenient thing that you can undergo, that I can't undergo, but that half a person could undergo. And at the end of it comes just about the most painful thing and and in often and and a very dangerous thing, you know, more danger. I think it's still just about in most places in the world more dangerous to have a baby than it is to have COVID, uh, if you're like 35 years right. old. Um uh, so back in the before times it was like, you know, sort of 10 super like, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Exactly. So so <sighs> So I'm not saying that women don't have a great interest, but but I that it, very few people try to make the argument that that interest is so great that it should justify killing an innocent person. Rather, they end up saying there's not a person in the vicinity, and that's a good argument. But then you shouldn't say this is about a woman's right to choose. That you should say this is about where does personhood begin? Does it begin here or does it begin there? I think that the desperation the anger and the fury that this debate often invokes on the left-hand side is because people started out with the thought that this is a, a woman's right to choose issue. And that was a bad mistake and they don't want to change their minds in public. Right. And on the right, I think the problem is I'll try and put this very briefly. The thought that births, that personhood starts with conception turns out to not be a particularly Christian view uh, you can be an atheist and take that view, and you can be a Christian and reject that view. Uh, so there's an insecurity about the fact that it's been bandied as a Christian view for a long time, but it's not. Um, 
uh, or certainly not necessarily. Theologians can debate this just as much as anyone else. The second problem is deeper. And it concisely gets put like this. It's the problem of twins. So it just turns out to be the case that once an egg and a sperm have connected, you do not necessarily have a person because that cell is going to split and it's going to split again and it could split again. It could split two to the four, 16. It could split four times so that you've got 16 cells and only then split in the sense of a cleavage so that you no longer have a clump where cells are split or doubling. I should say doubling. It can double and then double and double and then only at 16 split and then you've got two persons. Now, as a matter of logic, one person cannot become two persons. This is a point that has always been uh, important to Christian theology. Uh, it's also important, as it turns out, to Jewish theology. I imagine that it's important to Muslim theology. I'm not so sure of it. Uh, but it's a basic mathematical principle. One is not equal to two. Uh, and personhood is distinct and, optimist, and atomistic. That's the core essence of, of the idea of personhood. It's that I'm a different person to Nicholas. We are, we, we are not identical to anyone else, and we are identical to ourselves. So if you say when the sperm hits the egg, you've got a person, you have nothing good to say about twins. You've, <laughs> you've either got to say that Every case of twins, you've actually got one person in two bodies so that like twins should share a vote uh, and not be allowed to marry different people or else you call it polygamy or something. <laughs> That's that sounds, fun, sounds but insane. Like, you know, so, yeah, that sounds kind of fun in some ways. I mean, inconvenient, <laughs> but also like that would make but society like, more flavorful. It's definitely like there's a concept dystopian novel to be written there or something like uh or like a you know an episode of the mirror where society's like no conception life personhood begins at conception therefore twins and triplets and all you know i, I obviously i'm talking about identical not where you've got two eggs that are um inseminated so you can you can try and tell a story where you say no look personhood begins at 16 cells or 32 cells or whatever the point is where you can no longer have a split um but then you've given up on the kind of sperm hits the egg argument. And, and, and my point is just is that a matter of logic. Uh, and there are good Catholic theologians. There's all kinds of good people who um, have made this observation. As a matter of logic, you don't get to call twins persons and, get, and say, you don't get to call twins distinct persons and say that personhood begins at conception. Sorry, the, the other way out that you might try is to say that there's conception happens when the sperm hits the egg, but it turns out that two people were conceived. <laughs> but then how do you, then you've got a strange time indexing problem where you say, well, when Nicholas was conceived, it could have been two people, but then there was like, you know, Nicholas's mum was walked outside and there was a breeze and that's changed the process so that at 16 Cells. I like to think. I like to think I, I devoured my brother in utero, gaining his strength and becoming twice the man. <laughs> you, you savage. Anyway, <laughs> it's a difficult but... problem, and 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 the point is, and the point is that 
that no one on Team Red or Team Right or whatever you want to call it, not no one, almost no one wants to confront that problem. They've also started out with like conception is that's a simple bright line. We've got it. Uh, you guys are always going to deal with some gray zone, slippery slope thing. We've got the bright line, and it, and then you do a bit of science and you realize that bright line's not so bright, and then that's embarrassing, and that freaks people out um, because they don't want to seem to change their minds in public. And they could keep this convention story of saying conception by then changing their idea, like maybe one person's conceived, maybe two persons conceived, change their time indexing, just like the other side can keep their it's really about a woman's right to choose story if they um want to reconfigure the idea of what kinds of duties and burdens we can expect people to go through uh to avoid killing innocence um it can come out as it turns out like much more sort of sort of like hard-assed free marketeer um and, and and say you know someone's in my way i will drive through them um most people don't want to do that and they don't want to rethink in other ways that would more plausibly hold their views together by abandoning the bright line that they drew and well, coming look, to a line that's closer. So I think that's why look, I think that's why it's so hard is because everyone feels that there's a mystery. Everyone feels that their right. own position is not actually that good. And that's why they shout about it because they know at some level yeah, that so what they you, think doesn't make sense, that it's like a gut feeling that this is right and that's wrong and they can't really justify it. Because justifying me, it would mean yeah. having a theory of when personhood begins that is logically consistent and that coheres with the facts, and just about nobody has that. I know because I've checked the literature. So, so let me let me let me finish this off by just saying uh, that if you actually poll Americans as to what specifically they want the law to be, they come to a conclusion that something along like the legislative version of the blurry gray line, which is that well, oh, it's okay, sort of a bit. It's it's more okay. It's at first and less okay at the end, right? That's yes. the sort of consensus. No. It comes to. So, so, that's, so when it comes to the, right, it. when it comes to the, the, the wisdom of the masses is they seem to kind of arrive at the point you're sort of uh, 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 raising here, which is that yeah. they don't like either side, but at the no. same time, they're not super, they're not super keen on the whole thing. So they just, they just try to kind of fudge it to the middle somewhere. It's um, exactly that, right. It's exactly that turns right. out to be the average view. <laughs> which and is... the problem is only if you try and get someone to justify their particular position of right. fudginess. And then they can feel that it's fudgy and they don't want to seem fudgy. So they're like, no, they pick one side and then they defend it to the death. It's a terrible. You should just let people kind of do the competent thing, which is, uh, as it turns out, we're fairly competent at like, at Europe has shown, if you just let people vote this issue out, we're good at that. Even, and, and like, they'll, even they'll, in hardcore religious countries, this is this is also why, like, kind of Roe v. Wade is is why why this the the effects of this judgment, if it does indeed become the final judgment, are are so are being overly hysterically talked about. Is that there is a there is a democratic process that's going to then come into effect, and in a lot of places it's not going to change that much from what the status quo is. Um, so everyone must take a. And insofar as it changes, it's just going to be more like Europe where right. you're allowed to have an abortion, but not for as long. So right. Right. you kind yeah, of exactly. check your period more carefully or whatever it is, you know? Right, right, right. No, yeah, there's definitely going to be some people who this is going to cause some major difference for their lives, but yeah. for a lot of people, it won't. Um, okay, let's close up. Recommendations. I'll go first. Um, 
there are many, many people I know who know about the game Wordle, uh, which I think actually the New York Times now owns. Yeah. Um, I would like to recommend the two I've been playing. The one is Wordle, and I'll put links to them. And this is, you're given every day a outline of a country, and you have to say which country it is. You have six guesses. And every time you get a guess wrong, there's an arrow uh, that points you in the direction of the correct country oh, at a distance. So that's quite fun. So and then there's the harder version of Wordle, which is Tradle. You are given a picture of a, of a particular country's exports and the total amount of money. And it's the same thing. You have six guesses. Every time you guess wrong, you get an arrow pointing you and saying how far away you are from the right country. And uh, you have to try and work it out. Today's one, for example. So was, like if you um, get Canada, if you guess Canada and the right answer is US, it'll be like you are zero kilometers north of. Right, right, right. It'll say, it'll say you are, it, it says like from the capital or something. So it's like, oh, you yeah. are 100 kilometers uh, wrong or something like that. Uh, and then it'll point down. Um, so, you know, even if you don't really know, you can kind of get the ballpark. And then from there, you can, like, if you see a country exports like tropical fruits, you know that it's not, you know, Greenland. Today's one, uh, uh, you know, it's a country which took me four guesses. Um, petroleum, refined petroleum, broadcasting equipment, machinery, lots of little different things, not that much of, of one individual thing. Photo lab equipment, medical instruments. It's obviously a developed economy. But it did take me four guesses to get. Uh, anyway, there was it's 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 pretty fascinating just because you can uh, you, you learn a lot about the world. It's one of these great games that teaches you about the world, and it was in fact recommended to me by one of our colleagues, uh, Morris, originally. Um, but yeah, check that out. I'll put the links to it. The, the links to them are a little bit funny; they don't like make a lot of sense. But if you also search for them on a search engine, you should be able to find them. So that's Worldle and Tradle. Uh, Gabriel, oh, do you have a recommendation? Yeah, my recommendation is The Tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, very good. It is Oscar Bates. Um, I think it won. You know, there was like the god-awful, I'm not even going to get into it, that incident. But then there was the nice incident where like Samuel L. Jackson gave Denzel Washington like a career award or something. Anyway, Denzel Washington is, is Macbeth. Um, one of our colleagues... Uh, who's a Philistine, uh, would not approve. Um, I've just proved in public about this kind of thing. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. He's a big fan of South Park. Um, but Denzel Washington's performance, he hands in uh, a rock, a, a really, a really sort of disturbing, bow-legged, uh, prowling Macbeth. Francis McDormand, who people will know from sort of uh, Burn After Reading, uh, Two Billboards, the Martin McDonough movie that won an Oscar. She was in Fargo. She was the cop in Fargo. Sort of, uh, I would say, like the thinking man Sigourney Weaver, although I'm a big fan of Sigourney Weaver. Anyway, she's, she's Lady Macbeth. Um, I'll give the game away and say I think the movie is, it's sort of all in sepia. It's quite smoky. In part, uh, the, the the most recent Macbeth was with uh, movie was with uh, Michael Fassbender, 
and it was like you know blue scottish paint and everyone in scottish accents and like it was so wary it was trying so hard to be to bring out the bloody sort of filthy and muddy kind of mess of all of this um and uh kurosawa's uh macbeth uh throne of blood that great japanese adaptation in the 60s it will always stand out as one of as one of the most awesome movies ever made but i think this one sort of does something that i haven't seen since kurosawa which is to find a new reading of macbeth on film that's actually interesting that's not just teenage nonsense uh which i think the first better one ultimately was uh the set design really should have won instead the oscar went to june which i have been told by all of my friends who watched it stoned was the most beautiful movie they've seen oh june uh, is awesome so I get that. This is very pared down. It's like a De Chirico painting. Uh, people might know w- what I'm referring to. Uh, if not, Google De Chirico. Um, sort of minimal, simple lines repeated over and over again. Porticos, arches. Uh, very, very clean. Is it all in black and white? Because it looks like it is. Sepia. Uh, okay. Uh, so there's, you know, the the... the the color palette is as clean as can be. The spaces are as clean as can be. The courtyard is as clean. There's no, the furniture is so, but it's not minimal. I was thinking minimal is like uh, less is more. This is more simpler is better. And the uncluttered nature of the set design reinforces both the great speech of Macbeth, if you are to choose one. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow marches forth. Uh, creates this build-up to that speech, which is exceptionally. It, it gives a, a great bathos. Um, just it's 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 the most pathetic speech of Macbeth, uh, but it also has a bathos which you've n- never seen before. Um, I, I've I see even even from the promotional stills, what you're saying about the set design, I can really see it. Like there is everything is a straight line. <laughs> everything, oh, it's so, mm. and and I'll give away. I think the sublime the 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 original reading that I get from this is that you know Denzel Washington, France McDormand are substantially old, right? This is menopause. Now Macbeth and Lady Macbeth tend to it tends to be a story in which, although it's not like Anthony and Cleopatra double bill name where Lady Macbeth kind of plays a leading role and where the leading role and Kurosawa does this best is of a sexy, sadistic, sadomasochistic relationship in which this Machiavellian woman is deprived of the ability to seek power because of her sex. And so makes lots of speeches of unsex me now and from my breast instead of milk, I will give gall and so on and so forth. Sort of rejecting her womanness and at the same time using her sexual prowess to master her husband and in so doing manipulate him into against his best wishes and best interests and, and, and sober wisdom, uh, bloody murder. And in this way, the witches, the weird sisters, uh, are kind of just the hyper-abstract expression of this contorted feminine sexuality that ultimately manipulates the man into breaking his manly, virile sense of honor, the sense of duty that he has to his king and country and so forth. This is not. This is the first Macbeth in which Lady Macbeth seems to me like a real secondary character, where it's really about Macbeth, where he is in control, 
where he is in charge. And he, in fact, if anything, is manipulating his wife into going and, and cleaning up the bloody mess or making a mess, setting up the things. It really flips the, the script. But how and why, I think, at the deepest level is because they are clearly so old that they must have adult children. And yet that there are no adult children around. They are clearly so old that they cannot have any children going forward. And so when they talk about that, it's a lie. And so it basically, if you anyone knows who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, probably the greatest play to come out of America since World War II, written by Edward Albee. The, the key aspect of Virginia Woolf is a is a is a is barren ambition, is a is a marriage built around the lie of a child that exists that doesn't. And the madness of not being able to deal with the loss of one's children or not being able to deal with the loss of a barren marriage being expressed in this kind of crazy way. In this version, I think the uncluttedness, the straight lines, it all speaks to kind of a lack of 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 children around, a lack of the kind of mess that comes with 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 a productive life in that organic sense. And so you've got menopausal Macbeth. You've got a you've got a story of of true barren ambition. And it's it is in some sense more marching than dancing. And so very different to most Macbeths, which are which are pelvic thrusts and 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 bloody screams and out out damn spot all dramatic. This is subtle. This is the subtlest power, hungry expression of 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 the tragedy of barren ambition that I have that I've maybe ever seen. So strong wreck. Awesome stuff. Anyway, we hope that you found this interesting, and uh, I hope you keep the flag with liberty flying. Grr, grr. Grr, grr.